Hi, thank you so much to all of you for joining us for this evening's Q&A for IFC Films, The Novice. My name is Mara Webster with In Creative Company. Before I bring on Lauren, I just want to let you know that there's a Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. So if you have any questions throughout the duration of this evening's conversation, please feel welcome to put any questions that you might have into that box. Um, we'll keep an eye on those and try to jump to a couple of those towards the end of the discussion. Um, and it is my absolute pleasure to introduce the writer-director and editor of IFC's The Novice, Lauren Hadaway. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us this evening and, and congratulations on all of the Spirit Award nominations. I feel like it's got, got a whole slew, including Best Director, Best Film, Best Editor. So that's three categories just with you alone already. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of nice, especially if you're doing post-production in my kitchen during the pandemic. No idea if uh, film festivals or anything are going to exist. So um. Yeah, it's been good. Because yeah. And I wanted to jump in and start by talking about the central character of Alex played by Isabel Furman, because it feels like there's so many beats in the story and the way that you've told this story, the psychological aspects of her as a character that come from the fact that she's a woman who really strives to be the best, but isn't naturally gifted as being the best. So she is in that position of having to work twice as hard, you know, whether it was when she was at school or whether it's this endeavor with rowing that we see her go on throughout the film. Um, and what was kind of the point that you realize that narratively that gave you a much richer story to tell. And there were so many different narrative places that you could take the arc within that. Um, I mean, well, there's a, a lot of things I can say about that. First of all, I, I love the sort of obsessed artist trope film, right? But the thing, you know, usually in film, you have the, the coach or the mother, or they're trying to win the big game or go to the Olympics or whatever. And I've never related to that because I've always been very internally driven. And I sort of wrote and wrote this inspired by my years as a collegiate rower. And I was totally obsessed with it. I was doing 20 hours a week on top of double majoring and interning and working and, and being super active in, in a lot of things and just fucking dead tired. But I think I was obsessed with it, despite the fact that I'm not built to be a rower. I was never going to go to the Olympics. I was never going to get a career out of this. Like, I don't know, like, what is that from? Like, why the fuck did I do what I did to the level that I did it at? Because I could have done it in, in half-assed it or whatever, but I went full tilt. And so for me, this was kind of my, my character study and wanting to do a film, the obsessed artist film that is very much about the what if someone's internally driven, which I think most of us are, and it's really hard to do on film because again, it's it's a visual medium, it's a sonic medium, and it's not a novel. So if you're not putting it on the screen or in the speakers, like how do you tell that story? But that actually became the kind of creative, um, the fun and the challenge of like, how do you put the audience in the headspace of this character, 99% of whom don't know anything about rowing, and hopefully 99% of whom haven't experienced this level of obsession about something, right? Um, and that kind of dictated the creative choices and really the fun of it and trying to like do my slant on something that I think has been done a million times before. No, I think, I think that's a really great, great way to approach it. And, you know, did you find that actually by the fact that it was rowing and it is this space that has certain attainable goals that the audience can really understand, okay, she's trying to reach this time. Now she's trying to reach this time because she's achieved that goal actually really helped in bringing the audience inside of it. Because, you know, when you're watching something like Whiplash, it can be, you know, listening to art and creativity can be subjective, but with this is very clear delineations. Um, and how did that also really help you in terms of structuring the story in terms of where are these kind of attainable elements that she's trying to reach to? And then once she gets to that, what's the next arc for her as a character? 
Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because because it is like a, a frustrating thing as a writer. You know, you you hear this thing all the time, like you got to have stakes. What are the stakes? Like, and it's it can be fucking irritating, frankly. But it but it's a very real thing, and like you need a benchmark from which like the character and you, the audience, can know where we're at, where we're going. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, really frame this loosely. This is a little bit slightly tangent to what you're asking, but framed it loosely as a sort of love story between Alex and the sport of rowing. So yeah, there are the the literal she needs this time she has to get x these are the three things she can check off one two three and we're on to the she did that onto the next one onto the next one being very clear like this is what we're doing we're holding the audience's hand we're guiding them but also to framing it as a love story between alex and the sport and the the situation of like you know you have the initial attraction and the clunky beginnings and the kind of the first and like falling in love and getting to know each other and then the the first time making love which is the 500 frames the second scene um and then being the bliss in love i think anyone who's ever been in love you know that feeling of like wow this is gonna last forever like this is great this is amazing like this is i'm i found it i i am god and then it just like crumbles and falls apart right so that too i mean there there is the the number aspect and the the the, um i have to get this time i have to do the uh, around the lake row i feel like there's one more thing i'm forgetting right now um but then there's also the relationship aspect too that i really tried to frame the story around to give it some sort of some sort of device that the audience can feel like, okay, we're actually going somewhere with this and not just like a, you know, all over the place or, or whatever. But, but yeah, hopefully that answers your question. It doesn't. And I, I really, really kind of like cottoned on to that idea where it is this real relationship that she has and that idea of that love and that connection at the different stages, um, you know, and you can really see it in the visual aspects. Like the first time she gets into a boat, like you were talking about that clumsy feeling, she's not quite sure how to move with the boat. Her shirt's getting caught up in it. There's the moment where we see her just even touching the side of a boat and everything else just kind of gets quiet around her. And it's just her and the boat in that moment. And so how did you set about once you knew that it was kind of that romantic love? story finding those those visual aspects like those beats throughout the story that would really express that internal connection to the audience because you know one of one of the challenges that that comes across in this film for making it really is just so much of it is about an internal character journey and you're finding different ways to really bring the audience into the externalization of it um yeah I mean this goes back to I have a whole first career in post-production sound and and I had this sound mentor of mine who said two things to me that really stuck with me going into to trying to do writing directing um he said one that the best directors have intention with everything they do and also two like everything that you, if I cut in a sound effect of a dog barking right he's like why is that there like if you can't tell me why it's there you don't fucking put it there like it has to serve the story everything to the story right so if you apply that to the novice in this case of this girl who's obsessed with the sport and falling in love and getting obsessed and chasing this seemingly pointless endeavor, right? Um, I think that that sort of dictated the creative challenges. And then two, going into making my first film, it was November 2016 that I set a five-year goal to, to transition out of sound into writing and directing. And at that point, I was very actively like, how do I do this? It, it wasn't just like, yeah, I'm, I want to be a director. And it was like, how do I be a fucking director? Like, how do I actually do this? Um, and I researched, you know, a lot of my favorite directors, their first film, the scope, the scale, all of these things. And you come back to this cliche of write what you know, write the story only you can tell, but also like write what you want to fucking see, right? And as someone who was a rower, there aren't really a lot of rowing films um, when I was in college, 2010 is when Social Network came out. And there was that brilliant scene in the Social Network, which probably most people who've seen the film are familiar with, 
but that's like one scene and there's never been another film that's really captured rowing the way that it felt to me to the, the, these life and death stakes and like when you're watching it from the sidelines when you're watching it on the olympics it looks like very serene and peaceful and like gracious you know you're like wow like this is like an elegant sport but when you're fucking in it you want to die right um and i wanted to make my version of of a rowing film that felt like you want to fucking die um and so that like between that and between uh, you know trying to tell the story of like where's this character in this journey where is she like in terms of falling in love with the sport and how is she feeling like that dictated these creative choices and i wanted every rowing scene to feel very different right because if you do the same thing over and over and over it's going to feel repetitive so you have the kind of final race which is your fast and furious race you have the more kind of romantic things you have the more psychological things but if you look at every rowing scene in the film whether on the water or kind of in the the rowing erg room there's a different feel to it and it's really just sort of tracking like where is the character at mentally and then how do we fuck with that like how do we make that a, a scene in, a, in a, an event you know it's not just like a inspirational sports film or kind of the we got to make it feel fast and quick cutting it's more than that i wanted to get trippy and i want to get surreal with things yeah and i love that you were bringing up your your experience working in sound design i mean you've worked on incredible projects including with tarantino and the sound design is so striking in this film and there's a lot of moments where you know going back to what you were just saying about it has to feel intentional where you're intentionally bringing us into the sound design and making us really aware of of kind of like nuanced sounds that are being emphasized and then there's moments that you really play into like the subtlety and the quietness in different ways and so for you what what led the difference between those moments where you really wanted us to engage with the sound on screen and moments where you just wanted it to kind of seep into our minds but not for us to kind of pause and consciously be aware of it as much well I think the, the whole the whole experience visually and sonically is guiding the viewer and I think that the beauty of sound design and this is the one thing kind of like coming out of sound going into hopefully a career as a writer director I want to take it with me and I want to sort of champion this idea because whether you're an especially if you're an indie filmmaker like sound is a pretty cheap tool Right. And I always say, like, if you want to get very crude about it, you don't you fuck the 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 design of it and the, the sort of creatives of it. Like if you want to get about to the money aspect of it, it's cheap. Right. So if you have a scene with 100 people, you don't need to, to have 100 extras. You need to hear 100 people and you just see like 10 people. Right. So those kind of things. But that's something that came in very early on. And then, too, it was very clear from from writing the script into the lookbook and everything. Like I always wanted to play with the juxtaposition of quiets and, and very sort of cacophonous kind of overwhelming things. And I think the beauty of sound is that you can, because most people are thinking of visual, but again, half the cinematic experience is sound, right? So, and I think sound too, you can fuck with people on a subliminal level. They don't realize what's happening, right? And, and granted, most people seeing this are going to be seeing it on their laptop or the TV, whatever. But in a theater, like if you put something in the, the surround, the left surround, and you, they don't even know it, like it's going to, like you as a human being, as a, as a creature who's evolved to survive and not be killed by something stalking you and trying to eat you. If you hear something behind you, it's going to like, your ears are going to twitch, right? You don't even, you're not even conscious of it. So if you think about that, like you can really fuck with the human being on this really interesting level. And then too, if you want to get deeper, you play with sort of um, frequencies and things like that. If you know how sound works and something sounds, you can have something sound very loud, uh, and not actually be that loud if the thing before it was very quiet, right? So if you're aware of all these things, you can really fuck with people. And I think my goal with the sound was not, I mean, my my goal with the sound and the visuals both is to like have the audience feel on edge. Um, I don't want them to feel particularly, you know, like it, it's 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 in your face. Like the edges aren't sort of sanded off. 
um, it's rough and it, it hurts a little bit. And I want that because I want this feeling that as you approach the end of the film, like I wanted this very, this very much this feeling of it feels like you're driving off the cliff. It's like the ending of Thelma and Louise spoiler alert, you know, they're like fucking driving towards the cliff and they're going straight off. And kind of, I was consciously trying to make this film very much felt like that. And I didn't want the audience to feel like they could breathe until, until it was over. Yeah. And, you know, we, we were talking at the beginning about the editing and you were mentioning editing a lot of this on your kitchen table. And I, I wanted to talk about the editing because I think the editing is really, really spectacular in terms of, of the pacing that you find in scenes, kind of where those cuts are in terms of when you're kind of jumping between different camera takes, when you're allowing just like one continuous motion to really live on screen for a while, um, you know, and especially because you're directing a film and then you know that you're going into the edit room. How did that really help you when you were on set? Because you kind of already start to have an idea of what you're going to put together in a rough assembly and just the way that you're already thinking about post-production while you're choosing your shots and setups. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a cliche, you know, you write a film three times when you write, when you direct and when you edit it. And I think that's very true. And for me, you know, going way back to my quote unquote origin story, I um, I saw Kill Bill, wanted to be a filmmaker, wanted to be a director, I went to college, was overwhelmed. I was a redneck, went there, everyone there is like, rich and from the city and they're dudes and I'm like I can't be a director but I went into post-production I went in specifically to editing because for me it felt like an extension of what I love to do which was writing right and that's kind of what led to me actually discovering sound and doing that whole career um but but with editing with this I mean maybe in some ways me having that background was was good because my first job out of um college I cut reality tv very classy um Donna decorates Dallas leopard print carpet and jewels and things like that but yeah, I mean, there was a confidence in kind of going to this too as an indie film. Like we had spent so many years of, of I guess not so many compared to a lot of indie films, but it was a lot of sort of, we got to get the money and, and sort of slashing the budget and what can we do? Um, and then when we came to time to make the film, I mean, me and my producer, Ryan, I remember we had this conversation, like we have post-budgeted, but we don't really have any money left. Like we just let's just get the thing shot and like on a hard drive and worst case comes to worst. Like I have a background in editing I have a background in sound I can get us started right um so there was like that confidence from the beginning and I think me coming from this background of one editing two sound and also three I mean just being in sound and working with editors and I think especially in, I mean obviously mostly in post-production but the editors were second in command in terms of um the creative storytellers on a film and having worked in sound and worked with editors firsthand like you really see how they kind of shape everything and I think I had a unique education um coming into this because I didn't come into it I didn't direct short films and commercials and music videos and like a lot of first-time feature directors have but I came into it from this unique education of um doing a lot of dialogue and ADR supervising which probably 99 out of 100 people who are going to listen to this don't know what the fuck I'm talking about but what's important is that I go into a room with the director and with the actor and I'm watching them interact and how they're doing all this thing and sort of also to being post-production sound you're on the ass into post post-production right so you're seeing the film come together from a four-hour assembly down to whatever's in theaters you're seeing how the editor cuts in different sort of scores and temp scores and versions of it and you know what scenes are cutting out and re moving around and what what they have to go and reshoot for whatever reason or what adr you're shooting which is you know dubbing to sort of the actors come in and record their lines after the fact like especially on an action film they're basically rewriting the film afterwards right so all of that was like a unique kind of education and i think having that having that background definitely going into shooting it like I was constantly calculating in my head all of these things because we we ran into multiple scenes of 
shooting, especially exterior, like in the weather, in the rowing, shooting on water. It's a fucking nightmare. I mean, there's a reason Clint Eastwood's like, I'm never going to shoot a film on the water because it's a goddamn nightmare. But ran into all these these disasters and you know if the lightning there was a scene where the lightning lightning started and we had to cut the scene short and we had only filmed half of it and I had to calculate in my head okay like what do we need can I rewrite the scene to to take like the second half the information that happens in the second half of the scene like okay and, and like doing this like literally like within minutes because the producers tell me we gotta shut down we're fucked like you know all this shit like what can we rewrite okay I can rewrite this I can set an interior we need this information I wrap it up like this editing in my head in that kind of way so going into shooting like that was all very much important and then too I mean having the editing in mind early on became especially paramount for shooting on the water because you know shooting a dialogue scene is pretty you know you and me are talking we got basic even an idiot can at least get the coverage right like put a camera on you put one on me maybe get a wide basics um but shooting on the water is a nightmare uh, and I think, you know, me and Todd, the DP, we learned very quickly, like we had to know exactly what we need to tell the story, going back to telling the story, like we need a shot of the, the boat coming in here and we need the tip of the boat. We need to see this character looking to the right. We need to establish his geography of where everyone is because they're not on the frame at the same time. Right. So all of these came into play and really having to think in your head, like, how is this going to closing your eyes, like sitting in the shower, having an existential crisis thinking, how is this going to look like? what is this film looking like in my head as you're playing it in your head, right? And then you have those shots and you have to trust that you've edited it in your head in such a way that you've got everything you need because we didn't have fucking time to get coverage on like, especially the final race of the film, which we shot over three nights. Like a lot of those shots, we had like one take of anything and you look in a frame in either direction, it's unusable, right? We, we had to trust that if we got one take that was usable, we just checked it off. And we moved on because we did not have the time. And that, in a way, was editing kind of going into it. Um, and then, too, I mean, when you get to the editing process, I think, like, if you compare the, the first draft of the script versus the shooting draft of the script versus, like, what we shot versus my assembly edit versus what you see, the final product, everything is very different. And it is a discovery process. And, um, you know, the first edit of the film was two hours and one minute. And I think the final theatrical without credits is like 93 or 94 minutes. So there's almost 30 minutes of shit that's been cut out. Um, and there's full scenes and things cut out. I think, you know, you shoot what you need, then you kind of discover, you throw the clay on the on the pedestal or whatever, and then you shape it and you kind of figure out what it is and you throw things out with it. Yeah, no, I really love that. And and going back to what you were saying about shooting on the water and, and all of the kind of logistical nightmares that come with that, and there being a reason that Clint Eastwood doesn't want to do it again, I'm so impressed by what you've achieved cinematically in those scenes because you haven't just taken a camera and gone in a boat side by side and just gotten that shot kind of going along the side at like different close-up levels. The camera's moving around the characters all the time. You're really bringing us so close into Alex as a character at different moments from different angles, from different sides. You know, there's that really beautiful shot where she's changing seats and we get to kind of have the, the vantage point directly above her and the other rowers on the boat. Um, and so it was really, really interested in in how you set up your shot list and just logistically how you approach filming all the scenes on the water given that it's not about one or two angles it's not about one or two setups it's really about this real fluidity that you bring with the camera in all of those scenes yeah I mean it was an evolution again look I mean to be totally frank I, I don't have production experience I walked onto set the first day and I saw the the boat with the fucking techno crane in it 
like, and I was like, well, that's like a real thing. Like, this is a real fucking movie that we're making. Wow. Cause I, you know, in my head, I'm imagining it's just, this is the way I work with anything. If I'm traveling to a place I've never been, I always imagine like the quaint kind of like redneck version, probably a hundred years ago. But I imagine like, you know, a fishing boat with a guy, a camera on his shoulder or whatever. But no, Todd was, it was incredible. And, and he got all the equipment we needed. I showed up and, and saw the extent of things. And I think too, the grip department, I mean, it happened at a lot of phases because too, no one on the crew besides me knew anything about rowing. And so I had to be very active in it, but I don't know grip and I don't know camera. I don't know these things. I know what I want to see. I don't know how to get it. Right. But the, the things like dealing with telling the grip like we can't put these fucking clamps on this this shell because it's a honeycomb shell you're going to snap it you can't step here you're going to put your foot in the hole and you're going to sink the boat like little things like that and telling you know the follow boat with the techno crane on it like you can't go this fast like you can't be this close at the speed because you're going to swamp the boat it's going to sink we're going to lose half a day of shooting so these kind of things were kind of always in the back of the mind but um in terms of in terms of like getting those shots and things, I mean, I think the beauty, the thing that I've like learned as a director, and I think, you know, I learned this coming from my first career and going into this as well. It's like, I don't need to know the how of every little thing. Like, I don't need to know what, you know, all these specifics. I need to just have it in my head and be able to communicate it to Todd. And I think that's the beauty, again, my DP, the beauty of working with him is like, we, and this is her, his first feature film as well, but working together like he just he just connected with it it could translate that into the technical aspect that I didn't fucking understand right so a lot of these things you're talking about specifically like I had this in my head of what I wanted to see but like I if you had to tell me hey Lauren like let's this is what you want to how do you make it happen I couldn't fucking tell I mean I could give you an answer it would be wrong right but I think the key is you hire people who know this shit and who are so nerdy about this shit that they can take your vision and they're so like into it and into the camera, into the lenses, into the techno crane, into all these things that they're like, this is their passion too. You know, the ideal scenario is you have a whole crew of people who everyone's working on their passion projects. I mean, that never happens, but that's the the dream kind of situation. Um, but, but yeah, again, too, and it's, it's in thinking about the framing of the shots, it goes back to, again, what are you trying to tell with the story? Not just the, the literal, like, where's the boat, where's this and that, but where's the character in the journey? What is happening emotionally with this character? Um, there's a lot of like action scenes where we're not really watching the boat from the outside. It's not a lot of quick cuts. We're like in the boat, we're close up. We're very tight frame. She's going in and out of focus because to me, it's like this, 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 the scene isn't about winning this race. It's about this character killing herself to win the race. Right. And so that dictates kind of everything. Um, and, and again, I think the key is like always keeping in your mind, it's like the thesis statement when you're a student in high school, what is the thesis statement of your paper? Everything that every sentence you write after that has to go back and like say something about that. And I think that was key. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other scenes that has really, really incredible camera work is the moment where, um, you know, going back to the romanticism, it feels like it's like the first time that Alex and, and rowing are kind of like making love with one another, where you really slow everything down, because it's really impressive to look at the fact that you know, that scene is mostly shot in a shadow. You're just lighting Isabel in that moment. It's slow motion. So you need a lot of light in order for the camera to pick up that level of detail as well. Um, so what were some of the intricacies that came with putting that particular flow of shots together? 
Uh, well, first off, I'll say that that idea actually came from I saw um, Macbeth. I think that was 2013 with Michael Fassbender, and there were those scenes where you know he's killing the sword and and it's super slow motion. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's an action scene and it's so thrilling to me, but barely anything is happening. So that was in my head um, from the beginning. But it, and I wrote it in the script that way. Um, and then Todd came on, and it was tough because that was you know we, we shot with a phantom, and those are expensive, and we had gone over on our on our, our first week was Water Week uh, as a director, which is extremely uh, intense. But um, that had added like two days to production, and so we had already eaten through our post budget, and obviously budget and things w- were a huge consideration. But that's something that I had to. You know, my producer, Ryan, especially, he, he really tried to make that happen. And, and I, I try to be very collaborative with my team. You know, if, if things, you know, we don't have the money for this, we can't do this. I try and make it work as best I can. Um, there's not a lot of hills I will die on, but that was a hill that I was like, Ryan, this is a hill that I will die on. Like, we have to get the Phantom. We have to shoot it this way. We have to fucking make this work. And he he made it happen. However he did it, he made it happen. And we had the Phantom, but it was extremely stressful. And um yeah, there was like a huge spotlight. Again, I couldn't give you specific details, but it was insane to see it from my uneducated point of view to walk on and see like this giant spotlight. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And Todd just saying something like, well, it's a super slow frame rate. We need a lot of light. You got to like flood this thing with light. And I'm like, all right. And he's, you know, he's Todd was very active with the camera. Um, He shot a lot of things himself, but like he was doing, he shot everything for that scene himself. Uh, And I would like watch him do things like with it. And very much a dance and very quick and this and that. And I would give him notes. And again, and he would, sh- he would shoot back like, like you have to be moving because it's going so quick. Like it doesn't look good unless you're super active with it. And I was so intense and focused and we were running out of time and whatever. And Todd was very intense and focused and like trying to just get one more and like in it and totally addicted to it. And Isabel was intense and focused and like loving this thing. And, and I was telling her too. Like, Isabel, this is a scene, this is like your 1990s erotic sex scene, right? I'm going to objectify you in this. Um, We were all having, like, she was having fun. Me and Todd were stressed as fuck. But afterwards, she told us it was like, it was like watching mom and dad fight because you two were, like, tense but loved each other. And uh, trying to, like, because I was pushed, Todd, we have to move on. And he's trying to get another take and trying to get what we need. Um, But it was tough. I mean, again, it's like. It's he knew exactly what we did in terms of the technical. I knew what I was trying to get in terms of the shot list. Uh, he had the creativity of it. Isabel was totally down to to do take after take and totally completely invested in it. The producers, as stressed as they were and about to fucking lose their goddamn minds, I'm sure about as we were like stretching, you know, the minutes and, and whatever, um, they made it happen. And I think again, it's coming together and kind of recognizing those states of like what is really, really, really important to this film and like what are you willing to like sort of like this is I'm going to put my flag in the ground and like we have to fucking make this happen uh which you can't do with everything right because then you become sort of a diva or inflexible or this and that and it is a collaborative medium but um I think for for that yeah that was kind of in my head from for literally years before we shot it yeah, no, I mean, the payoff of that scene, it's so worth everything hearing that you went through there. Um, I wanted to jump to a couple questions that that we have people sending in. Um, someone was asking, how did you work with the actors on their character development? And did you have time for rehearsals beforehand? We didn't really have um, like a like a rehearsal period. What what we would do, what I would do every single day before shooting, this was kind of became a actually very therapeutic for me because uh, it's extremely stressful to make a movie, but I would go into the makeup trailer uh, and hang out as whoever was getting ready and talk to them about the scene, 
talk to them about where they're coming from and where they're going and, and just get a feel, you know, and if, and I think, um, that helped a lot of things and talking to Isabel and Amy and Delone since kind of shooting. I mean, the thing they told me is like, it seemed like you had a question, like you had an answer for every question that we might've had. Uh, so I understood these characters front and back. I knew what was driving them, like where they came from, where they were going. I never gave them like a document. You know, I, you, you read about that times, like you give a, an actor a specific document of these things. I didn't give that to them, but I had the answers in my head. Like I had thought a lot about it. Um, so I could sort of answer any questions they had about motivation or what they were doing or where they were feeling. And again, it started in the makeup trailer. And then in terms of rehearsals, what we mostly did was, um, you know, it's the blocking thing. And, and one thing I would recommend to any kind of like up and coming filmmakers who maybe don't have a lot of experience. It's like, I watched a masterclass with, with Ron Howard, which he did a, a class on um, blocking specifically. Like he covers a lot of things, but for whatever reason, blocking wasn't something I hadn't thought about a lot as a, as a filmmaker. And it, it's very obvious in hindsight, but like, again, you and me are talking, right? So when you're writing the scene, when you're thinking about directing the scene, you're thinking about how do we capture you listening? How do you capture me talking? Like, what are we doing with the camera? But in a film like this, you have an entire rowing team in the background also there. And some of them are background and the AD covers that, but like anyone who's a supporting cast, like they're looking at you wanting to know what the fuck they're supposed to be doing. Right. And that was like a realization for me. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I have to tell these people what to do in the background. But the, the fun of that too, is you get to tell those people what to do in the background. And so in some ways, that became adding to the character of you and me are talking, but these other three supporting casts or in the background and you could have them do things and you could deal with their sort of, um, you know, who, the hierarchy of their relationship and the sort of their personalities and the way that they, they sort of drag something across the screen or how they call to each other and how they interact with each other. Like that is all really fun. And I think um, something that, you know, very quickly I caught on to obviously because I had to, but it wasn't apparent kind of going into it. Um, and then I think too, in terms of working with actors, I tend to be, I think directors are mixed on this. I, I think, you know, I want them to be able to say what's on the page, but I'm also open to changes. If someone tells me, Hey, what do you think about this line? If I genuinely think it's better, I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Um, I'm not sure. I'll say, let's get it both ways. But if I don't think it's going to work, I'm not afraid to say, well, I am afraid to say it, but I choose to say it anyways. I'm like, you know what, <laughs> let's do it my way. Um, and I think the key is the thing that I've learned as someone working with creatives and being a creative myself is that people really want a cage in a sense, like not a cage maybe, but like a yard, right? You want to know what your boundaries are. Um, and I've talked about this with Isabel and being like, Isabel, you're not a dog. I'm not a dog. But how I relate it to is like a dog is really well behaved when it has a master who's in command. It knows where it's like territory is, like what it's protecting gets starts getting neurotic and like chewing chewing the walls up and, and going insane and barking nonstop but it doesn't know what's going on right so I think the key for me both in terms of giving sort of direction and in receiving it like what I really crave and what I really want for people is to be very clear about this is what I'm trying to do this is the yard you're playing in you can do whatever the fuck you want within this yard like it's all you um and certainly if an actor or, or a crew member, whoever comes up to you and says, I have this idea, what do you think? Fuck yeah, you collaborate, you listen, especially if people know more than you about things, but you don't want to do, you don't want to run into the case of this classic, you know, like, where are we going to eat? Wherever you want to eat, you know, like whatever's good. That's like the worst fucking thing you can do. And I think the kind of like newbie and young person thing to do, and I've been both in many 
careers and relationships and whatever is to say that thinking you want to be, you know, pleasant, easy to work with. But I actually, I think it's better to have a very specific idea of what you want, communicate that clearly, and then just be open to kind of adjusting as you go. Yeah. You just got to choose the restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) please. Uh, we have a really great question from Morgan, um, who's saying the score and the soundtrack are amazing. What was it like working with Alex Weston and how many of the songs on the soundtrack are songs from Connie Francis and Brenda Lee? Could you talk about these choices? Oh yeah. Um, so I think there's two Connie Francis and one Brenda Lee, or maybe one, two Brenda Lee and one Connie. I can't remember, but so that's two separate things. I'll talk about the songs first. The, the 1960s love songs were something that I had written into the script pretty early on. And that was kind of an, I wouldn't say an accident per se, but I wrote the first draft of the script and, you know, the story was in my mind and Spotify has the kind of recommended for you playlist. Right. And I listened to a lot of oldies music and, uh, one of those songs, I believe it was Aldi Law, which is in the middle of the film, came onto a random playlist and I heard it for the first time ever. And immediately, and this is probably 2018, I early 2018 uh, or late 2017, because I wrote the first draft July 2017. Um, I heard this song and like this whole scene that happens in the middle of the film with the foggy row and there's like a bird that flies across screen and it's bliss and there's and sun is rising and it's like, oh, it's like, lo- it's fucking love that all hit my, like, it came into my head. And I remember listening to that song on repeat. I probably listened to it 60 times. Um, and all of that clicked. And uh, I, that side of, that was the first seed of an idea. And I remember telling my producers about it kind of nervously, like, what do you think about this scene with the song? And then reacting really positively and, and then things developed from there. And I think multiple of those tracks were actually written into the script um, and a lot of those songs existed uh, in the edit. And there was Aldi Law, Someday I'll Want You to Want You, and I'm Sorry were the three that I really, really wanted and that had been in the edit um, from the first time I cut the scene. And we were able to get those. And the other ones, other songs, we, we kind of had to fill in as we needed to get cheaper versions or whatever. The score was a different um, animal. <laughs> it was the last thing to kind of come together. And it was pretty brutal. I mean... The score was the one thing about the film, honestly, that I never had a very clear idea about what I want it to be. And, um, <clears throat> you know, editors, they're not just editing the film. They're also cutting in the first version of the soundtrack in terms of sound design and also the score. So if you see, you know, as a sound editor, when I get the first empty, empty film, there's already the whole like draft essentially of what the film is going to be from the editor who's cut these sounds and these temp scores in it's a very extensive process and it's very complex um so i had i had done this obviously in the in the sort of premiere and in, in the timeline but you know i had re-temp scored the film cutting in different sort of vibes of music i think three separate times which is a lot of work for uh, for a film and it had gone from sort of on the nose kind of dronal heavy tense stuff to even techno to even um you know, more comedic kind of thing, like trying to figure out what the fuck it was supposed to be and nothing felt right. Uh, finally, there was one track in the film that that did feel right, but it didn't match anything else. I remember telling everyone like, this track doesn't fit anything else, but it it seems right, but I don't know what to replace it with. And it turns out that was the only track that was right. Everything else was wrong, but it didn't click for me until um, I started learning French as a pandemic hobby, uh, you know, and I was only listening to French music for like literally a year and it was probably August. This was before all the festival deadlines. And I was so sick of listening to French music. 
but I didn't want to break my rule and listen to American music. So I put on a, a sound, a Spotify playlist of like random movie kind of soundtracks just because I, for no reason. And I, by chance, a song, uh, a track from the farewell came up, which if anyone's seen the film, it's nothing like the novice, but something popped up and kind of like Aldi law. Like when I heard this song, this, this track, it clicked in my head, like the opening shot of the, the boat spinning uh, and there's kind of a vocal, a very simple vocal plucky thing that happens in the farewell. And, I, and it clicked for me. And I was on a drive at the time because there's nothing else to do during the pandemic, but fucking drive. Um, and it like I had this inspiration and and I turned around and I drove home. I cut like seven minutes out of the film and retemp scored the entire film using tracks from the farewell and moonlight and maybe a couple other. I think Alex Weston did a couple other um, things I had used as well. And um, and then I sent him this really a passionate manic email like you've inspired me you know 11th hour you must come on and help me make this film blah 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 and he's told the story since then like yeah it was just a Tuesday I was having pizza and I get this email and I was like okay yeah but for me it was it was like life or death scenario and so he came on and um and then that that was like the final piece that made it kind of all click together um and then working with him was great because I think recording the the soundtrack for this was the first time he had been back in the studio since the pandemic had started um and it was pretty extensive i mean he was i don't know what he's used to getting normally but if you look at our notes that we got like i was sending him novels back like i loved everything he's doing but i'm like very specific on what i want and how and cutting in different temps and taking things and approving things and it was an extensive process um you know, because we only had the money to really record real instruments once. So we had to get everything right with the kind of like temp um, MIDI stuff. Um, and then he recorded it and uh, it all came together and it was like the final piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I love I love all of those details. And, uh, you know, speaking of your learning French during the pandemic, I know it's the middle of the night for you because you're based over in, in Paris now. So don't want to keep you any longer. But thank you so much, Lauren. Genuine pleasure hearing you talk all about the film and congratulations on everything again with the novice. Thank you. It was lovely talking.